Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 22, The Four Worlds, Evolutionary Medicine and You. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. If you're a loyal listener, thanks for tuning in once again, and thanks for tuning in if this is your first time here. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Good day to you, Michael. Good day to you, and it sure is a nice day. Yeah, it's a great day to be sitting down to do a podcast, as we are wont to do every couple of weeks or so. Uh, Michael, introduce yourself for folks who haven't heard from you before. Uh, So I practice integrative medicine. I've been at it for over 20 years. Uh, I do that by combining the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and nutrition with the vast experience and wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine. And uh, you're somebody yourself who has your own um, things go wrong sometimes? Uh, Well, I'm a patient in the sense that I have Crohn's disease and colitis. So needless, needless to say, you have your own uh, your own sort of health challenges, and that's something that's... that's well, it keeps me pretty real with uh, what works and what doesn't, because I'm always trying things on myself, so... There you go. Uh, Michael Smith, the human guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anthony Santa, uh, known on Twitter as Truth About Food. Uh, I am also an online marketing smarty pants. I work with uh, clients uh, here locally in town as well as uh, across Canada so far uh, to help them market their businesses online. A uh, bit of a uh, broadcast junkie. I host a community affairs radio program here in Nelson as well as I have taken that education and experience and turned it into a um, a real love for doing things behind the microphone, um, as well as I have my own sort of health story, and I've been a patient of Michael's. Combine all of that, and uh, here we are today, sitting behind uh, the microphones doing a podcast. Um, Michael, what are we on about today? Ev- evolutionary medicine, what's that all about? Well, there's a kind of a groundswell in the functional medicine world and the nutrition world, where uh, instead of just picking away at, you know, if you're getting enough vitamin D, or if uh, we should or shouldn't eat butter, um, people are just trying to figure out from a archaeological, anthropological point of view, well, what have we actually eaten, you know, since I guess we were primates and if we've managed to evolve and thrive more or less throughout history on those kind of diets, maybe, uh, that would work. And evolutionary medicine takes it even a step further by trying to mirror the kind of exercise or, uh, just basically lifestyle dynamics, social dynamics of, uh, previous kinds of cultures and, uh, uh, ways we survived throughout history. And by doing that, there's, uh, you know, multiple benefits in the sense that, you know, good diet, good exercise, good sleep, you know, good social connection is kind of like one plus one plus one plus one equals 20. Mm-hmm. Because by doing all of those things consistently, uh, it's kind of like, uh, you just gain more and more momentum. And this is based all around what's called epigenetics and nutrigenomics, where by giving our body exactly what it needs, you know, work, re- uh, pardon me, you know, uh, food, lifestyle, uh, exercise, and other things, um, <clears throat> we put our, our epigenetics, which are we're basically responsible for gene expression, um, in a very comfortable place, which they like. And when your epigenetics is happy, your gene expression is less likely to be bad for you. In the sense that, oh, I got that thing my parents had, you know, because I ate sugar at McDonald's and pizza for five years. 
So the tack that we've been taking with uh, podcasts so far, I mean, we just finished a, a brain series, mm-hmm. a four-part series on uh, brain health and how that affects us. Uh, the sort of takeaway that I had from the last podcast was how um, wonderful it is to actually be alive as a human and different things we can do to um, everything from singing to dancing to playing to, so you name it, to improve our health and our physiology. Um, and it sounds like today as you just described it there, evolutionary medicine uh, speaks to um, who we are as beings on the planet. Is that the right way to say it? Well, I think it's, I mean, there's so many layers to that really, because I mean, there's the conditioning we have as modern humans with computers and bank accounts and taxes to pay. And then the vast amount of conditioning we have as migratory scavenging hunter gatherers or homesteaders or uh, you know, people who live on the coast who spend a lot of time fishing out of a boat. And you know, those cultures and lifestyles are very deeply imprinted on us as well because unless you're from another planet, and, you know, for the listeners out there, if that's true, cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, unless you're from another planet, you have the same uh, epigenetic sensitivities and drives and comfort zones. I think you've said it once before um, that we're all indigenous people. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I say as a person with actual indigenous ancestry and, you know, a big part of my life and my culture and my spiritual practice uh, comes from that. But you talk to any elder who's not grumpy and they're going to say, yeah, I mean, we're all indigenous to the planet. You know, we're all indigenous to this entire creation. So if aliens did show up, they'd be indigenous too. So this whole idea of being, um, you know, I don't mean this racially, but I'm a white person and that means I'm not indigenous and we've done bad things around the planet, so I should feel bad. I mean, that's just history. It's not really a race thing, you know, whereas if you look at anyone as a human being, um, the more we actually accept and live as if we are connected to each other and to, you know, nature as, you know, the seasons and the planet and the biosphere and our food supply, uh, you know, in the sense of a feedback loop, it's inevitable that as a species, we're going to continually make better decisions from that perspective, you know, because right now, you know, if we're we're living in that separate, you know, scared, you know, place of, I just want enough for me and my friends and family and everyone else can go to hell and planet can go to hell too, which we're doing, Mm. Uh, you know, with that perspective, you know, as a species and as a planet, you know, our ecosystem isn't looking so great, you know, whereas if we can actually just take the time to reconnect to the world, ourselves, our lifestyles with a sense of meaning, you know, around mindset and stuff, you know, that's going to actually help us change the the trajectory of our, well, present seemingly bus accident that we're all sitting on waiting to see what happens, you know. When I introduced the podcast, I talk about uh, health, lifestyle, and mindset. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've talked a lot about health, I guess the mechanics of how does our bodies work Mm -hmm. and how... um, uh, last podcast in terms of brain health, we talked about nootropics and uh, different minerals and supplementations and that sort of thing, and how that affects the physiology of our brain mm-hmm. and how that affects our um, our outlook on life and that sort of thing. It sounds like when you talk about the uh, evolutionary medicine approach, um, it takes that to a much deeper level, almost like a um, page one kind of thing. Well, it sort of brings up something because... I guess every maybe 10 podcasts, I just feel intuitively compelled to do something from an indigenous perspective, if it's around mindset or read it on a relationship. And um, Here's uh, an interesting thing from, say, First Nations or Native American point of view. Um, 
we we like to pair up animals as kind of like a team. And when you're looking at a certain kind of problem solving, we like to pair up mouse and eagle. Okay. Right? So when we're looking at things like the brain or nootropics or vitamins and, you know, the do's and don'ts day to day on being healthy, that's kind of like a mouse way of looking at life. Because mice, mouse, as a sort of mentor or teacher, it's all about being really busy, being really responsible, getting all of your you know, buckets in a row, whatever that actually means, you know, because mice spend so much of their time running around building nests and finding seeds and storing things away. And and I'm not putting that down. I'm saying it's really a powerful thing to be conscious that you're doing the most part of your problem solving and then do it well. Details, you know, time pressure, you know, get sorted out. And then when you look at the eagle point of view, it's all about perspective. I mean, the eagle's flying a mile high. The eagle can see the mouse, could fly down and eat the mouse. But the eagle can also see the entire, say, ecosystem or, you know, region that the mouse is living in and can have a bigger perspective on, you know, the success or failure of what the mouse is so busy trying to do. So this podcast, in the sense of evolutionary medicine, I thought it would just be nice to kind of sit back from an eagle point of view with a vaster perspective and actually share um, my indigenous ancestors' perception of human history. You know, which goes back at least to the last ice age, if not many ice ages, uh, depending on how long we're allowed to uh, have had language, you know, sense of scientists and stuff. And I guess the idea around um, sharing that perspective, uh, I mean, the name of the podcast, Evolutionary Medicine and You. So um, this perspective that you have around evolutionary medicine is uh, good medicine today, that higher perspective. Yeah, and it's about the four worlds, which I'll get into in a bit. Okay. But each world or way we've lived in the world is kind of like a lifestyle, and it has a certain diet, it has a certain kind of exercise pattern, it has a certain kind of social pattern, it has, you know, its challenges its uh, and its gifts. And we've all lived through that, unless you're from another planet. <laughs> so um, by being able to touch in with that, you know, some people might be really more attracted to a first world kind of lifestyle, which we'll get into in you know, to see what that's like, because maybe that would be the best thing for their epigenetic situation around their actual diagnosis and, and stuff, which I'll speak to as we go through the four worlds. But uh, for me, it's just one of the easiest things to, like when I'm in the clinic with people, to say, I'm just going to really quickly say, this is kind of how humans got here, dun, dun, dun. And, you know, that's, this is what you could do to really improve your health by focusing on this kind of lifestyle. And people are usually going, wow, that makes really good sense. And so maybe that's where we should start the conversation. Then. Yeah. Uh, let's pretend I just walked in the door. Hi, Michael. <laughs> Hi, Anthony. Nice to see you. <laughs> Tell me a story. So um, from a First Nations point of view, when we look at uh, anything, it's going to be in cycles. Right? Okay. There's four seasons, and then we have the four worlds. And um, it isn't like one, two, three, four, and see what happens with five. It's that we do one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four in cycles. So the first world... Uh, it's called the world of the north, and it always happens by water. And the word we have in the Dene language for that world is Niholdilchil, uh, and uh, not the easiest thing for everyone to say, but um, that word actually describes the experience of a baby at its mother's breast, sort of napping and feeding. It also describes a certain time of day and you know other things. It's pretty fluid language, but if you go back through evolutionary. Uh, history for human beings, uh, and we touched on this in a previous podcast, so I'll just sort of glance by it. Um, you know, you go back to the point where primates, and then there's big ice ages, the ice, you know, basically squeezes everyone towards the equator, and then, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, 
food frenzy about who gets to make it through that. Um, and then there's not enough resources because during ice ages, there's not a lot of rain, there's not a lot of grass, so there's not a lot of things growing. So some primates, and this is pretty much proven now, um, went to the equator, went to the beach and started eating you know, mussels and crabs and then learn to swim. And then we ended up looking like this. If we fast forward, you know, you know, maybe a million years or two, and we're actually looking more like, you know, proto-humans. And we've been living at the beach, you know, on and off, you know, depending on, you know, ice ages and weather and other things. Uh, we're now a people who swim a lot to get food and for fun and maybe, uh, I don't know, grab onto turtles for a free ride, you know, and maybe figure out surfing or at least paddling around on some kind of raft or boat. And our lifestyle is all really around our reciprocity with the ocean. More interestingly, I, th I think, um, again, from that word, uh, it's really all about sufficiency. So now you're a part of a culture, you know, that has a great sense of honor and perhaps danger with what's in, in the ocean, you know, because there's always the water monsters, you know, nabbing our kids and stuff. It's a, it's a society or a culture of complete sufficiency and sharing because it's the ocean. It's not like you're going to suddenly run out of beaches and the ocean for people to go and hang out with. So if strangers came by, it's not like the urge is to fight against them for our particular ocean. It's more like, oh, wow, there's more people to hang out with than, you know, make out with in the, you know, bushes behind the beach. Um, because we're, you know, as close to what you might call infinite uh, resources, you know, as, as a species. And the more we keep adapting and evolving better ways to access bigger fish, all of a sudden, you know, we're a, a more sufficient and abundant culture and a kind of people whose instinct is to take care of someone who's hungry instead of blame them and judge them for why they're hungry. Hmm. You said something there about, uh, about sharing as well. Hmm. And, um, is that sharing between each other as uh, humans or sharing between me and the ocean that's giving? Uh, I think both. Okay. I mean, the idea of reciprocity and right relationship in indigenous cultures always have to do with making offerings. Uh, I have an uncle who's Quaquitl and his people and their coastal people. When they finish their uh, salmon catch, they take uh, when they take the salmon catch and they have their big, you know, festival of drying it out and making it into various different things for the winter. They always take the skeletons up to the top of the actual freshwater beds that they spawn in to give them back their life. Hmm. Right. So there's the sharing and reciprocity with you and your friends and your family and uh, maybe your pet you know, turtle or something like that, and any strangers that come by, but also with the actual ecology that supports that. That's a bit of a different perspective than how it is today. Yeah, I guess that's sort of the point is, you know, it's not only about eat lots of fish, which would be a, you know, nutritionally really good idea for the most part, but uh, to just, you know, realize that there's a way of living that's just consistent. I mean, and there's two things that I really want to make sure I don't miss here. And, and one of them is, um, where does everybody want to go when they go on holidays? The beach. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like our home place where instinctually on a genetic level, we just remember everybody has enough. Hmm. I, I save up enough money to take a break from making enough money to take a break. And then I actually get to take the break, you know? So we're, we're drawn to this opportunity where everyone's going to take care of everyone else, you know? 
And a lot of, I guess, countries or, you know, areas that have become, you know, the go-to beach place, you know, you go to Hawaii and what are you going to do? It's going to be a luau. We're going to feast and dance and celebrate and sing. And, you know, cause it's all you wretched, poor, tired workaholics who come here for two weeks every year, you know, imagine that job. What's your job? Oh, I run a luau in, you know, Maui. Every day I dance and sing and make feasts for my friends. <laughs> Hmm. That doesn't sound too stressful. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it pays well, but you know, I just think it's an interesting thing for the, the listeners, for, for us as a society that, you know, the, you know, modern meme or kind of habit of, okay, we're going to get married and then we're going to work really hard. Both of us, you know, keep our kid in daycare so we can now pay for this maybe extravagant or just overpriced lifestyle, you know, and that's, I mean, that's what we're doing. I'm not saying stop. That's, you know, we're not, not allowed anymore. I'm just saying, I mean, there's a big polarity or a big scale of difference between modern workaholic debt life and the beach. Mm -hmm. And you may, may not be able to just leave your particular situation and go to the beach at, at all, never mind two weeks a year. But you could find something like that in your life. Or you can go to a place where lying by water, hanging out with your friends, getting some sun, eating some good food, you know, camping or whatever you want to call it, that would be a really good thing to have in your I can do that when I want list of things to do. I mean, for some people, maybe that's I'd like to do that at least once in my life. I mean, for me, I got to do that every once in a while or it's not life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see how um, you're prescribing Going to the beach as medicine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that not that that's uh, should be of a surprise to anyone who's listening who's human. <laughs> you know, seeing as we already know that there are some people who are listening that aren't. Um, yeah, just, just that, that whole perspective on, um, uh, getting away into the beach and escaping and, um, whatever sort of travel lingo that sort of exists out there. Yeah. And for me, it's just sufficiency. I mean, I'm in a situation where, my food is going to be taken care of. If you can fish, that's not really hard to do. Hmm. You know, I'm with people and we don't have a lot of distraction because there's no electricity, hopefully, <laughs> on the beach. There's no Wi-Fi. Yeah, oh, I saw a, a guy who invented a cooler that's got a blender, battery, light, music, and Wi-Fi. Right. Which is cool, but just go to a different beach, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and there's another thing that um, I started doing years ago. Um, because I was reflecting on this, you know, the, the evolutionary past, evolutionary medicine and weird opportunities to take that further. So if you were to imagine yourself as a something between primate and human, uh, along the, you know, trajectory of that part of evolution, and you've now made the distinction that you can swim, although it's scary as heck, and the best food is at the bottom of the water or at least the easiest to catch and most predictable stuff. So now you're sitting there treading water. Maybe it's 15 feet down and you've got to suddenly hold your breath, swim down as fast as you can, do whatever hunting or spearfishing or, you know, grabbing of crabs and lobsters and stuff that you can get away with and then swim back up to, to the surface and maybe, you know, put it in a basket or hand it off to a friend or, you know, go back to the beach. And, uh, Here's the fun science bit. When you actually do that pattern of swimming, you're going to have more impact on your brain and your immune system and your circulation and your vitality than almost anything else you could do. Because mm. when you exert yourself intensely 
well, not being able to bring in more oxygen, that uh, sudden and unusual amount of carbon dioxide in your blood uh, system, uh, your vascular system, changes a whole bunch of really interesting dynamics. Um, which improves cognition, improves memory, circulation, um, clearing out a, from cellular waste through your liver and kidneys. It's basically, you know, if you want to go from like a, I don't know, a little putt-putt metabolism that's barely getting around, you know, on the two cylinders you've got in your car to a big, you know, vroom-vroom V8. In the sense of metabolic health, not in the sense of exhausting the environment. Right. You know, all of a sudden you've changed inherently what your metabolism is uh, able to do by stressing it in a very unique and, my point is, very familiar way genetically and evolutionarily. It sounds like you're saying that the things, when you, when you highlight the word familiar, um, even though I didn't grow up at the beach um, in the middle of Ontario, mm-hmm. <laughs> weren't any tropical beaches or tropical fish or anything like that near me, uh, that's still a part of me. Mm-hmm. That's still part of my, I don't know, uh, is it the right way to say it? It's part of my epigenetics? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so the, you, you, you're talking about the, the four different worlds? Yeah, so yeah. that's the first world. First world, uh, again, is? Uh, we pronounce it as Nihol and that basically just describes living with sufficiency and sharing. Okay. And uh, lots of napping. <laughs> <laughs> Sleeping in the sun. Cool. So that's the first world. What's yep. next? So uh, if we kind of look at this from an anthropological point of view, uh, during cold times or relative ice ages, um, there's really not a lot of uh, land mass covered in animals and grass and trees and forests. So during more temperate times, when there's going to be significantly larger grasslands and you know, more buffaloes and other things, um, obviously the entire ecology of the planet is more robust. And not only you're covers about 20% of our actual evolutionary past. But now we can leave the beach, follow freshwater, you know, supplies up into the, you know, past some mountains or whatever, and all of a sudden we're in a completely different world where scavenging from, if it's, you know, leftover kills from wolves or following ravens to, you know, the, the bone pile or whatever. You know, we go from a sort of hand-to-mouth subsistence uh, at the ocean to an eventual kind of hunter-gatherer civilization where, you know, at first we're scavenging and then we're actually taking down the animals ourselves and now we have hides for clothes and maybe hides for shelters or we, you know, dig holes in the ground for shelters or whatever. You know, so now we have this very, very different, you know, I would say much more physically demanding uh, culture and lifestyle um, because we're always moving around, carrying stuff or setting stuff up. So we've got a place to stay or taking it down and carrying it somewhere else and, you know, moving from water source to water source and eventually following migratory herds. So, you know, basically the, the cardio version of, you know, <laughs> post primate humans, uh, in the sense that we're doing a lot more physical work, uh, and we're on the move all of the time. And now our diet is basically going to be way, way more animal fat, you know, which is really, really good for us, good for the evolution of the brain. Uh, just as good as all of the fish oils were when we were living at the beach, you know. So we're doing all these things that keep fueling the growth and evolution of our physical brain in the sense of evolution of consciousness, not just, you know, more brain stuff. The word we have for that world is uh, and that word basically describes what it would feel like um, to be floating on an ocean of topography. You know, you go over a mountain, into a valley, across a plain, through a, you know, big river valley to, 
whatever kind of ecology or biosphere you're you're actually in. Um, but the word for that is constantly moving and seeing the world as if you were bobbing on an ocean of land. You know, and there's all kinds of really interesting things that are implicit to that kind of culture, uh, or how around how we raise kids, around how we describe the world, uh, how we actually navigate and stuff like that. Which I don't know if we need to get into too much of that part of it, but again, it's a culture of cooperation. Cooperation again with each other and the land. Yeah, now we all know we have to gather this much berries this month and dry this much neat meat next month and make this much uh, pemmican <clears throat> to get through the, the hungry time in spring. You know, so now we're living on basically a ketogenic diet or a fat primarily based diet, you know, for certain months of the year because if you live far enough away from the equator and you've got a hole up for winter because it's cold out, you know, you can't just keep running around your trap lines hoping to keep feeding yourself freshly. So, you know, there's this period of time, you know, for all indigenous peoples that aren't close to the equator where you just have to figure out, you know, how to store food and fat because we didn't have fridges up until well, now. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the, the concept of um, being nomadic and going across the land searching for food, as you understand it today, you see how that has been, how that evolution is, is, uh, something that reflects positively uh, if we were to follow those sorts of principles in our makeup today. Um, but did they, did they know that then? Or is there anything in the indigenous teachings that actually says, um, I don't know, at a basic level, this is good for your health to actually follow things this way? Well, I mean, a lot of this really has to do with, uh, I think in English you would just say life generating life. Mm. And that's, you know, we say okay, people down in Peru, they say ani. There's all these different words that speak to a living reciprocity of life, taking care of life. You know, where I grew up, uh, you know, hunting lodge and stuff like that, you know, hunting, trapping, trapping, fishing and stuff like that, because that's what we had to do. <laughs> um, there are certain cycles of things where, you know, this is the bad year for hunting rabbits, so we're not going to, you know. A few years later, this is the best year for hunting rabbits, so, you know, take as many as you want. Uh, same with, you know, caribou, elk, moose, deer, and stuff. Um, whatever animal is in abundance, you know, it becomes our source of life, and we find that animal by finding its source of life. If you want a certain kind of animal, you just go to where it gets its food and, and you there know, it is. take care of business. But the, the thing is, is that it kind of brings up the context of what um, sort of the New Age people would say, you know, the native people were custodians of the planet. And in a way, that's actually true because you're only going to hunt the animals that are abundant and protect the animals that aren't. And I guess bringing that into today, because, I mean, we're trying to, you know, make this podcast tangible and relevant. Well, to that people. was going to be my next question. Now, yeah. that, now that we understand the first two worlds or mm -hmm. have some sort of understanding of that, how does that relate to um, me today sitting in front of you behind a microphone <laughs> in yeah. a city. <laughs> so, I mean, there's just basically that principle of reciprocity. I mean, we were, as a species, you know, we're way overpopulated and we keep going after the same resources and farming the same foods. And you talk to any intelligent person who's actually, you know, living as a homesteader or doing permaculture. And even the World Health Organization recently said, the only chance we have with this kind of population is for the, you know, major proportion of the population of the planet to go back to subsistence farming, you know, basically homesteading and stuff like that, to be growing your own food organically and producing more topsoil and, you know, that kind of stuff. Because, I mean, 
I mean, obviously you can't do that in a high rise, but you could have friends 20 miles down the road that you can do that with. Hmm. Right. And it's being more, um, I, I guess what I'm hearing you say is, is that the, the idea of evolutionary medicine, you're talking about how societies, these indigenous peoples at that time were more, um, involved in their lives, involved in what it took in order to keep themselves alive as opposed to just being somebody who sits in an office and then goes and buys groceries and then sits at home like they were actually actively being alive as opposed to just sort of passively yeah now that's uh, the thing that every time i take people into the bush usually every couple times you take people out for like a wilderness survival course or something and the thing that always happens with people and this is i guess a trick i play on people is, you know, the first night we're learning basic skills, you know, in the sense of hunter-gatherer stuff. Um, and everyone has their own pack and their own sleeping bag if they brought anything like that. Some people like to go, uh, call it, I don't know, what is that, cowboy or something like that, where you just got a cup and a knife or something. <laughs> <laughs> and the first conversation is trying to help people feel like they're safe. Okay. Because, you know, you've never been out in nature and you're trying to figure that out. You know, oh my God, I'm going to be eaten by bears or something. Um, but within usually a couple of days, people are now sharing tarps and, you know, tents and sleeping bags and we're all cooking out of the same pot and sharing the food. And it's no longer about being safe. It's about being alive. Mm. Right. Cause now we're just consensually by default of efficiency and fun, just cooperating and sharing and working together. And, uh, you know, anything that's made can be used by everybody. You know, because we're always, when I take people out to these things, we're making, you know, hunting implements and stuff like that. And we all get to play to see how an atlatl works or whatever, and, you know. But it's just that, that attitude that, you know, human beings, when you put them in a situation like that, will always come together. We'll always shake out the hierarchy of decision making very, very quickly in the sense of who's confident and, you know, outspoken and who's careful and, uh, but it becomes a tribe, you know, within two to three days, you know, people that are all like, I spent 200 bucks to do this or chop and I want my money's worth too. I have a family of people I can rely on. Wow. Very cool. And, um, uh, again, bring that back to the, the idea of, uh, uh, health, uh, or the topic of the podcast, like fusion health, mm -hmm. that being, being connected. Well, uh, I think the is, word belonging is the big one. Yeah. Well, belonging connected, um, is, you know, potent medicine. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily something that um, I would, you know, I'm just going to blanket this, that most of our listeners probably don't have that in some well, way. I mean, the, but the conversation I've had with, some, I don't know, countless people in, in my life doing the work that I do is, and it's usually a very tear, tearful, grieving conversation when a person realizes through belonging to something that they haven't belonged to anything up until now. Hmm. Right. It could be a very... Um, painful realization i would think and i'll just take the painful to a painful level and i guess i want to do this as kind of a yield sign uh people who suffer addiction spend a lot of time alone because they don't belong enough to you know the endeavor of other people or a sense of community or you know just you know being able to consistently be met as yourself by other people uh, i mean bringing up something really touchy but um, in almost every case where some young person has, you know, lost their particular, uh, cool and gone into their school and started shooting, shooting people, those kids are the most alienated kids in the high school, which is the opposite of belonging. So you're shunning and shaming and bullying somebody 
who's a post-wandering person, primate, you know, scavenging hunter-gatherer in their DNA. I mean, they're basically being shunned all of the time, if not shamed, which is a new thing, which is the worst thing that our species can actually tolerate. I mean, that's the worst stress we have. Yeah, well, um, it makes me think of uh, how parents will um, choose to do that as a form of discipline um, to ostracize their kid. You're grounded. Go to your room, which is totally, um, I don't believe is a good way to discipline. It's trauma. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It, I mean, and I'll, I'll go into that a little bit because it's, it comes back to a practice that I think is very potent for people. So clearly shaming people is not effective mm-hmm. in the long term of growing up a healthy, sane, functional, happy, belonging human. Right. Um, however, um, if we were to go back to our imagined wandering people, you know, migratory people, and we're all gathering berries because it's that time of year. And one of our tribe is really distracted. You know, we've called that one chases butterflies because she or he is always chasing the butterflies when we have lots to do. And then we all gather together to have some lunch and everyone ignores chases butterflies. We're not calling him or her names. We're not punishing them. We're not sending them to the corner of the pit house or something. You know, we're just not giving them any attention because we're trying to remind them viscerally uh, the cooperation is at the center of where people are doing things together. So if you're going to be off doing other things when we need you to be doing these things, we're going to just keep reminding you the cooperation's over here through shunning you. Hmm. Now, shunning is a very passive use of my attention is not on you. And if you try and get into where my attention is, I'm going to turn away from you. Again, I haven't hit you. I haven't judged you. I haven't shamed you. But I'm making you, and we all feel it in exactly the same place right in our gut, where all of a sudden we're like, oh, I've lost my you know natural access to attention and that's my belongingness and that's actually in a way your safety. So how this can turn into a really powerful habit because we're all split personalities in five different ways or so in the sense of the different ways we talk to ourselves. A really potent practice is to learn to shun the part of you that is shaming you. To alienate the part of you that doesn't serve you? I don't want to alienate it. I just want to let it know the cooperation is somewhere else. Because hmm. the shaming voice, the self-loathing and judging voice, that's not cooperation. You're just trying to punish yourself into behaving better because it's your parents thought that would work. Right. And it doesn't. Nope. No. I say this again because it's trauma. <laughs> <laughs> trauma. Wow. Um And this is, I mean, for people who are struggling with a lot of difficulty, if it's anxiety, depression, addiction, um, other compelling things your mind keeps doing when you give it the bungee cord or the free reign to do. So all you have to do is isolate that, give it a name. You know, that's Mike when he's a jerk. (laughs) Jerk Mike, okay. And I'm just going to ignore jerk Mike from now on. When I'm, you know, really needing to take care of myself, I'm going to sit with the people that I spend time with when I need to get some help. And when Jerk Mike wants to come into the stream of consciousness, take over the microphone of my head and start, you know, railing on me for whatever I did wrong, I just keep moving my attention to something that has to do with cooperation. Hmm. Uh, a friend of mine has uh, the concept uh, chattering monkeys. And um, the idea is uh, whatever conversation goes inside my head, uh, and every now and again the chattering monkeys start uh, 
getting all crazy and going bonkers and derailing good things and they start driving the show um and for him he just in his mind he just quite stops feeding the monkeys mm-hmm. you know yeah. it's like okay monkeys guess what <laughs> yeah, i mean i think you know and we could say meditation but i think there's this whole um multi-layered group of opportunities between mundane day-to-day you know random monkey thinking and actually meditation you know and part of that is just mental hygiene mm-hmm you know, I no longer want to allow the the more toxic voices to be allowed to keep speaking. They're never going to not be a part of my makeup because of the trauma that made them come into being. Well, it, 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 the, let me just say this before I forget it. The, the idea that you said about the different voices in my head or the different personalities, um, knowing and appreciating that um, there is um, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, that that actually exists in me and that I can choose to pay attention to one or the other if I want to um, and being deliberate to actually uh, pay attention to the angel versus uh, the devil, the, the, the thing that doesn't serve me um, and how when doing that, that affects all aspects of my health, both the physiological and the metabolic and everything inside, you know, everything that's going on inside my body is served better well when it's uh, in conversation with this caring part of me as opposed to this jerk. Yeah, we've all got the jerk. Yeah, cool. Um, so that's two worlds. Mm-hmm. What's the third? So if we look at ourselves as migratory people who've been following the same herd of animals, you know, kind of in a circle for, you know, thousands of years, uh, and we have the hygienic habit of putting all of our waste and poop and everything in the kind of manure pile at a certain distance from wherever we're sleeping, we're going to start to notice that the manure pile is full of really amazing food. Because (laughs) if, you know, we eat, you know, squash and we swallow a seed, we eat apples, we swallow a seed, and we keep putting it in the midden heap, you know, near where we like to have our big summer camp, eventually the midden heap turns into a big forest of food. And there's actually old native stories where, from where I grew up. Uh, we call her Squash Blossom Girl. And it's an old story about how this young woman figured out how to grow and transplant food and seeds because her grandmother had was lame because of a, you know she fell off of a cliff and broke her leg. And the people were carrying her around to take care of her and stuff because we love the old people. Um, but at a certain point, you have to make the you know, economic decision, can we keep doing this? And this young girl basically started to go, well, you know, if that's actually true, we go to the midden heap every year, and now it's a squash garden, and it's a you know, apple tree, and it's a this and a that. It doesn't take very long. Even if you watch animals like beavers and stuff, you start realizing you can plant your own food. Wait a minute. <laughs> If I, I'm going to say a, a, a little torch comes up, up in your head, you know. You, they didn't have LED light bulbs back then. I was going to say, it's not a light bulb. But, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, so we learned passive agronomy. And this is still practiced in, in indigenous people all over the world, where you go around and you basically correct your valley system. Correct your valley system? Yeah, so you're wandering along and you decide to follow another herd and you're in a new valley system and no one's been there before. And it usually takes three or four years, especially with young people taking the seeds and the poop from bears and, you know, whatever, and putting it in the ground and adding things. And this is actually where offering tobacco to, to things as an offering became a thing. Um, that's another story. But anyway, uh, within a few years, you're going to have all of the things that you like to eat 
growing where they like to grow in your valley system. You know, there's the shady side, the sunny side, where there's a lot of water, a little water. And, you know, it doesn't take very long to figure out how to put seeds and shade and water and stuff to everywhere. In fact, there's a book called uh, 1491, which is these guys who noticed in Central South America when they're flying around looking for something, that there was all this weird topography that was obviously human-designed you know, complete valley systems and things that rearranged the topography of the planet just enough to make it basically like the Garden of Eden. Like it's literally a garden where you grow everything you want. And also you're going to have tracks of things like shrubs that deer eat. So you have a little creek that the deer are going to be, you know, there's enough trees for them to feel safe. And all the shrubs they like to nibble on, it's no longer hunting. In fact, the, the, one of the Dene words for hunting just means making meat. Hmm. You know, because we have the image of hunting, you know, Elmer Fudd, be very, very quiet. <laughs> it's like, or you could just sit up against a tree and wait for Bambi to show up for her lunch. <laughs> and then just bag her right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, uh, I'm in the valley. I've figured out that I've got seeds in my poop and that I can plant them and that I can get things. Yeah. So we've got passive agronomy, which we're still hunting, gathering, but now we have these sort of valley systems, you know, in other places that are more like a home because it's predictably, you know, every year we just get better and better at having everything we want around. And then inevitably, if you have the right kind of uh, environment or tools, you become a homesteader. Hmm. And that's really the third world. And uh, in Dine, it's Nita uh, Nihuka, which means the world where we walk around in the same place. That's not walking around in circles. <laughs> well, not so much walking around in circles, but it just describes someone who's wandering around kind of distinctly different from wandering everywhere on a floating sea of topography. And now we're wanderers who just sort of wander around. And it could even describe just wandering around the circle of a migratory pattern of, of animals. Mm, okay. But eventually it became wandering around your homestead or, you know, your garden, your, uh, you know, field of corn and, you know, uh, squash and beans and whatever else you're growing. And all those other things you find in your poop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it just sort of brings up that opportunity to remind people that, you know, the reason why all those plant seeds and beans and stuff can get into your poop and grow up in your poop is that they're really hard to digest, which is why I say with the sort of like paleo diets and stuff, we try and avoid grains and beans, but hmm. it just reinforces the imagery. Because Okay. So, um, uh, wandering around in place or however you just described it, um, bring that forward to today. What's, what's the sort of uh, correlation between? Well, I think I just want to speak a little bit more to the experience of that. Okay. Cause I mean, this is, I think the, in terms of fusion health, it's there's the diet there's mm -hmm. the amount of exercise you're going to get and the kind of exercise you're going to get and then there's the kind of social experience you're going to have okay so at the beach that's pretty clear wandering scavenging you know noble savages or whatever we supposedly are um and now you're basically you know living in a community of people where maybe each of us on our homesteading little farm grows a lot of something and then we share and trade for a lot of something else with somebody down the road which gives us a village, which is, I mean, that's the first time ever that humans have had like a place we always go to, to, to trade, barter, share, learn, gossip with the village that's, you know, 50 miles down the road and 50 miles is from a villager's point of view, like maybe once a year, you're going to get there. Right. You know, so now we have this again, cooperative, consensual family dynamic of a tribe that now is instead of busy trying to find, you know, and make better food we're just growing it and storing it and eating it and sharing it 
And now we have way more time for the development of actual culture. If it's the way we dress, if it's how often we sing together, um, if we decide to build a church or whatever a 8,000-year-old version of that might look like, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, places where we do our sacred things. But again, it's all about sufficiency for everybody living in a consensual cooperative place where, although now it's relatively 14 hours a day of back-breaking chores, (laughs) you're in great shape (laughs) and you're eating really, really well, but you're doing it for everybody else more than just you. Right. Right. And um, again, I'm going to come back to my question. How do you see that um, overlaying however you see health today for the individual? Um, Well, I think this sort of menu practical thing would be you know you're eating a lot of vegetables you're eating a lot of protein you're eating a lot of fat and now you're eating a lot of uh preserved foods like kimchi and sauerkraut and that kind of stuff maybe you've got uh, animal husbandry going so now you've got some yogurt or kefir or cheese or lots of butter so i mean just to make sure we don't miss out that opportunity you know the <clears throat> that homesteading diet is probably one of the healthiest diets uh, in the world if you're physically really really active hmm. Yeah, and a lot of uh, soups and stews and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, root cellar full of roots, garden full of things, herbs that are medicinal or, or just savory hanging from your cool homesteader barn with a you know big fireplace you made yourself out of rock and mud. And Sorry, <laughs> waiting for the romantic music to come in. <laughs> Fires crackling, a little bear rug. Yeah, I see Laura Ingalls <laughs> on, on a cart coming down, Little House on the Prairie. Um, okay, third world is akin to being a uh, happy, healthy homesteader. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do we go from there? Well, then we get to this place where your village is being raided by the people that are still in the second world, and which is annoying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you can only share so much with the people who are living in your consensual, you know, sort of sphere of influence. And if the second world people, which would look like, I don't know, Little house, house on the Prairie or whatever that show is, where there's everyone busy farming and then those dastardly native people would come by and just grab some food because, well, there's a giant field of food. So, you know, the idea of ownership is completely, you know, outside doesn't, of your language. <laughs> doesn't exist for them. You know, but I mean, now there's the struggle of we have to protect our food from other people. Maybe another village has a, a drought or a famine and they come to, you know, fight with us over our food. And this creates the fourth world which we call Mita'ashke, which is basically a time of competing for resources. And everyone's impatient. Everything is very, very serious. Consequences abound at everything. Now we have religions where punishment and social control seem necessary to keep everyone busily defending the village, now the town, now the country, now the empire. You know, and now here we are, you know, 2016. Living in the fourth world. Living in the fourth world and, you know, not to go prognosticating or whatever, but from a traditional cultural point of view, like the way I was, you know, raised up by you know elders and medicine people, um, from the idea that or the experience that the world is conscious and animate, is if we keep being behaving like really bad kids, our mom, the earth, and our father, the sun, will be angry with each other, and move away from each other, making the world very cold creating another ice age which cleans off the whole thing and, and we go back to world number one because there's nothing left <laughs> interesting so the uh the native um ideas around these four worlds is something that 
again, I'm just trying to remember how you said it earlier, it's cyclical. So we're in this sort of process now. Um, and does that necessarily mean that we have to go that way? Um, well, I mean, I guess I'd have to pick a hat. I mean, there's me who knows about science and archaeology and anthropology and uh, glacial uh, curves and stuff, which is, it seems inevitable if the temperature of the planet keeps going up, it's going to have to go down. And if you look at all of evolutionary past without human intervention or greenhouse gases and stuff, it still happens that way. We're just accelerating the process. So maybe we'll figure out science and technology and slow that down and maybe even get so cool with technology we can stop the next ice age from happening and create a beautiful, hopefully consensual, hopefully cooperative garden on the planet that can last forever. Right, so that's your that's your that's your pointy science guy hat. Well, I mean that that's more like my science fiction that's happy and positive <clears throat> hat of you know maybe it's possible we'll we'll figure out a technological hack to keep you know from damaging the environment so much it's going to flip back to its other pole, which would be an ice age. Sure. From a traditional point of view, I mean that's more about uh, honestly how we treat each other, how we treat uh, the animals we we you know kill and eat, you know basically how we treat everything because when, when your primary word for interacting with people is a repetitive way of in, in implying reciprocity with all things, it's always going to be about that. And right now, I mean, even the way I'm living as close to that as I can, uh, it's way out of balance. Hmm. And is there, um, I guess, I guess I'm stuck on the, the flow of things. If, you know, one world leads to the next, um, is there an opportunity for uh, things to uh, revert, to go back to the third world instead of progress again over to, you know, scavenging on the beach? Uh, we'd all end up kind of homesteading. Well, I mean, this is where speaking about this in English gets sort of bonky because if you look around the planet right now, there are people in the first world. There are people in the second world and the third world and the fourth world. Okay. Right. So obviously we can choose any one of those if we actively want to live in one. It may not be a homesteading village without electricity, because why would you not have electricity? You now we've got electricity, that's cool. But how many people are trying to start intentional communities around growing food and sharing food? There's a few of them here in the Kootenays. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're kind of at the pointy end of the evolutionary opportunities for the species, because this is one of the healthiest uh, most conscious uh, places on the planet. I'm not saying that just because it's cool to be here. I mean, we're actually the town in this country that eats the most vegetables per capita. Really? Yep. Where'd you read that? It was like four years ago. We won the vegetable prize. Wow. Cool. So, so I mean, around where we live, we know it's it's there. There's just that natural, you know. You know, we rub into each other every day because it's a small community where we see the people who are actually bringing in their, you know, truck full of squash and potatoes that they grew and that we sell out of the, the main store where we all buy food. And uh, so I think we're just as a as a mini society, we're way 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 more connected to, aware of, and acting on that opportunity to maybe move back towards the third world to balance out, you know, not going back to the first one. Mm -hmm. And I'll throw this in just because. Um, it would be incomplete not to do so. Every culture that deals with uh, big cycles and potential calamities has a prophecy. According to whatever culture you happen to have been grown up in, there's the Mayan prophecy that was supposed to take us out in 2012 because some literal 
anthropologist took a conversation literally and ran with that. Right. Um, you know, in Dene culture, we have this aspiration towards a fifth world. And uh, this happened basically at the beginning of this culture um, with a being uh, she's uh, called Changing Woman who came along and as a young woman ended up leading the people through a really difficult time. And whether or not that literally happened doesn't matter so much as recognizing that the young feminine, not just young women, but the young feminine in nature is often the least uh, given sort of the least credibility, but it has the most power. Hmm. And this maybe get me into some trouble, but I'm speaking to this in a historical, but also, I guess, poking people subtly in the present. If all young women in any culture suddenly decide to make a certain cultural meme important, like if you're a, you know, a greedy corporate planet killing bastard, we're going to walk away from you. Mm. Right. If, if women decide that the only men that they're actually going to spend time with are men that are doing something conscious and proactive and effective towards the world, that would happen in a generation because men will do everything that we are compelled to do to try and meet women. So as young men trying to, you know, find a date with a young woman, if it's implicit in your culture that you can't be a jerk or, you know, a person just obsessed with money, you know, or, you know, not taking care of your health or obviously not taking care of your, you know, part of the, the bigger ecology, then you're just not cool anymore. I mean, up till now, I mean, the more of a jerk you are and the less you care about the people around you, the cooler you are. Yeah, I can see how a certain political figures have subscribed to that you know, <laughs> in the past. You know, and I'm not picking on women. I'm just saying that, you know, there's this, they have, they have all the power in the sense of the direction of the culture. It's just, they get left behind once the culture gets established, you know, and then they want to, I'll, I'll find my, uh, myself a man who's really successful in this new culture. Hmm. And that's, um, part of the Dene, um, uh, prophecy. Yeah. It's the, the, the young women are going to take over which way this goes. And again, here we are in, in Nelson, BC, in the Kootenays, where we have the most empowered, you know, autonomous, independent women who don't put up with anything. Mm-hmm. And all of us have to basically, oh, I better stay in shape and, you know, keep it together and be conscious or else <laughs> I'm going to be lonely. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you're going to be scavenging for crabs on the beach on your own. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, I've had, I don't know how many relatives come to visit me here, you know, and they're like, this is the most amazingly healthy, thin, fit, attractive place I've ever been in my life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree with you there. That was my first impression when I first came here. It's like, wow, there's no ugly people in town. <laughs> like, like where's, where, where are all the normal people? <laughs> and yeah. that was like, uh, over 10 years ago, I remember coming here and just sort of noticing not just the physical qualities of what people look like, both men and women, mm-hmm. in terms of their attractiveness, but just the um, the openness, the fact that people smile, smile to you here on the street. Um, there was just something in the air, it felt like, around how people live here and how they show up here. That was yeah, different. and this, I think, brings us around to kind of the, the real reason why I wanted to speak to this in the first place. If you are to make a distinction between... Um, the culture that basically ran with the paradigm of scarcity, control, and fear, which actually started when the Aryan nation came out of uh, Eastern Europe, the Black Sea, and took over that part of Europe, and then eventually took over India, became the Brahmins of India. 
And they had this this intense thing, which is, you know, you can just take over and, you know, maintain control and power and dominate people, right? So we're all living in the echoes of scarcity consciousness. And, I mean, that's one of the most hard-to-carry-and-live-with things that I've ever been aware of. Because as soon as my mind goes to, I don't have enough B12, <laughs> I don't have enough money in the bank, I don't have... Uh, you know, access to whatever it is I actually need to be happy, healthy, and, you know, fit and having fun, my mind gets really squirrely because, it, it, you know, there's the fear and the scarcity and the, i got to solve that or, or I'm a loser because I don't have, have, have. Whereas if you start cooperating and seeking sufficiency with anybody else who seems to, you know, notice that that's actually the solve for the scarcity thing, you're, you're back into the, you know, the first, second, third world where, as long as we cooperate and consensually try and make a difference that makes the most sense and we're active about it, we're not a culture of scarcity. Right? And right now we're at this tipping point, peak oil, peak water, peak food, peak sanity, you know, in the sense that we're not going to have enough for everybody and there's we, we keep everybodying everybody because there's almost 8 billion of us. So, you know, anyway, so it's just getting to the... The, the, I guess the meat of the reason why this uh, conversation uh, wanted to happen was that's that's really the big healing opportunity for people is sufficiency only happens with other people you can't have a sufficiency of your of one connection is good medicine and, and sharing yeah you know and and owning everything that everybody else owns I mean that's never going to work I know people here in the Kootenays who um, they buy tools together, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, they, you they, got car shares, tool shares, everything. Yeah. There's just things that I've never seen before and always occurred to me as being like a really cool idea. Um, the one thing was a wood splitter, you know, it's like a $500 device and it's shared between four different families. Um, and they all take care of it. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them better than the others because that's the kind of guy that he is. But yeah, could have one of those on your team. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you know, like what a what a, a great idea. And so when when we talk about evolutionary um, uh, medicine and how that uh, relates to um, our listeners, mm -hmm. um, what would be what would be the next thing to do with this idea? I mean, you've introduced the idea of uh, living in collaboration and sharing and all that sort of stuff. How does the everyday person take that on? Like if I'm, okay, well, I walked in, I'm your patient. You've told me these great stories, four worlds, maybe a fifth one. And I'm sort of here and scratch my head going, okay, well, what do I do with all that? So the most practical thing would be to spend some time in the first world. Go to the beach? Go to the beach, swim. <clears throat> Actually swim like I described. Where you swim down 10 feet and then pick up a rock and come to the surface and drop the rock and pick up the rock to reset your epigenetic comfort zone, to induce triggers that have been triggers since we were primates that have triggered evolutionary adaptive growth, right? Hiking, I just saw this article, I can't remember where, where the, they proved scientifically all of these very specific neurological, physiological, and metabolic benefits of hiking with people. I mean, better with people than just by yourself, but, you know, as long as you're hiking, you know, so there's obviously that. I mean, uh, the dietary choices of living on a very nutrient-dense sort of pescatarian plants, fish, uh, you know, focused diet, I mean, I can't see that ever being bad for anyone. You know, sure, there's some concerns nowadays people have around, you know, radiation and mercury and other stuff, but they're not as uh, scary as people on Facebook make them seem. 
you know, there are places where I don't think I'd want to go fishing, but we're still at a place where the wild fish is still better than farmed fish. Mm. You know, and then you look at the paleo diet, or what we like to call the real paleo diet, where, you know, you're expanding your uh, plant base and your animal base for your food supply, but you're just trying to avoid a lot of processed foods and or kind of more the homesteader foods like grains and uh, dairy and stuff like that. But most people who are doing uh, a paleo-centered or ancestral-centered diet are also aware that you have to sleep, you know, eight, nine hours a night if you can, and or at least not mess with your pineal gland by staring at screens all of the time. Uh, you need to get enough exercise. So if you're not walking four hours a day, then, you know, you're going to have to hit the gym or something to, to activate uh, your metabolism around the normal amount of activity our species has been dealing with forever up until, you know, keyboards. <laughs> up until Facebook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you call that thing? The eye posture where people now can sit there on the bus tapping into their little device. And yeah, with their, their head tilted down at a 60 degree angle. Yeah, whatever. But, you know, so, I mean, I guess I really wanted to make kind of three points. You know, first point is we're all indigenous to this planet and we all can do, um, more, even if it's basic things, towards reconnecting to life in that way. You know, just being a, being in nature more, you know, but doing it consciously as, you know, uh, as custodians or as conscious participants in the entire planet, not just your corner of Arkansas or whatever. Hmm. Nothing against Arkansas. Um, you know, the other point is, you know, what I was describing in terms of the amount of exercise and the kind of food you eat. You've got the first world version, second world version, third world version, and then this crazy experiment we're doing nowadays with, you know, either weird supplement concoctions replacing food or art of food replacing food or fad diets replacing food. Or things in boxes pretending to be food. Yeah, if it says good for you, and here's why, it's not good for you. <laughs> You know, but just like very quickly, you know, there's very simple ways of imitating those different kinds of lifestyles. But more importantly, my, my other main point is we have to start reconnecting with people in the way that we've always been connected and belonging, at least in somewhat. If it's just the people in your church or just the people in your martial arts class, at least it's a start. But to know, know within your whole being, you know, on a cellular level that I belong in a group of people and we share something. You know, if it's a kind of exercise or an ideology, it's it's just important to do that because the least healthy humans are the ones that have the most alienation, shaming, and isolation. You know, and here are our great go-to for bad people. Let's put them in solitary confinement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of how uh, big this idea is. Those in the three points that you just shared there. Um, where do you want to take this conversation next? I mean, we've been speaking for just over an hour, oops. and um, well, not an oops. I mean, I, I think it's it's important for people to understand how. Um, I mean, as I as I've understood it from you in the past and through this podcast, how my um, humanness is uh, a big part of me being healthy. Uh, and respecting that and understanding that and tapping into that as opposed to, oh, in order to be healthy, I just need to drive to the store, pick up this thing in a bottle and take it and I'm magically healed or go talk to some guy in a white lab coat and take some pills and I am magically healed. I mean, that's about as dispassionate and removed as it gets from health from my perspective and in my experience. And as you've been sharing all this sort of stuff, I'm 
I'm, I'm curious, look, how, how do you want to see people take things next, the listener? What is it that they, they can be doing for themselves with this information? So if that was the eagle view of human endeavor on the planet and how we got to where we are right now, if we go back to the mouse thing in the sense of right now, today, practical things, mm-hmm. step one, take the you know huge revolutionary, you know insane idea of cleaning all the crap out of your house that you know isn't good for you. And just either give it to people who need anything they can get their hands on and start returning to a sense of consensus with yourself. You know, we all know what a good idea is and we all know more or less what's good for us and what's bad for us. And we've all made this consensual thing, which is I'll just keep going on with the status quo. And if something bad enough happens, I'll reach out to someone who hopefully can save me. So, you know, I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying step one make the commitment to at least try, you know, for at least a hundred days to live consciously, which means distraction, uh, compensatory addictive behavior, uh, using weird, crumpy, manipulative tactics to avoid actually communicating with the people in your life or whatever we all do, uh, to just see what a consensual, cooperative, conscious hundred days would look like. I'm going to eat real food. I'm going to exercise in the way that makes sense. I'm going to be in nature in the way that works for me. I'm going to find something I belong to and commit to it. You know, at whatever age you're at, that's going to be different. But to do that consciously, it's one thing to go to uh, some meeting or it's your book club or it's your whatever you're doing and to just sort of go and go through the motions of, oh, yeah, I'm in a room with my friends, to actually really sitting there, you know, you know, head to toenails, feeling what it's like to actually belong and to be connected and to enjoy the mannerisms, the sense of humor, the different ways people laugh, and to actually turn up the volume of the pleasure you get from being connected to people by actually noticing that that's one of the biggest vitamins there is. Mm. You know, And if you're alone, especially in nature, to begin spending time consciously connecting with nature. It's one thing to go and sit on a bench. It's another thing to sit right down at the edge of the, at the beach or, you know, creek or whatever, and just notice that this is the kind of the deepest race memory we have. And, and to, to just let that wash over you. I mean, turn up the volume of the reciprocity you feel when you really connect. You know, take off your shoes, walk on the ground. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about little details, but I think, my, my points coming across is we don't need to go into some abstract future to get through where we painted ourselves into a corner as much as we're going to need to go back into the past to rediscover who we are in order to make a good decision about where we need to go. Hmm. I mean, that, that's more of a meta, you know, almost political conversation. But, but still, I, I guess I, I like how you, you wrap that up for me in my mind's eye. It's easy for me to sort of realize that it's simple almost everyday things that I can do with maybe a different perspective when I come to do them, um, that could be the most potentially healing thing that I could do for myself. Uh, like by engaging, um, in a group in some way, actually, you know, putting my hand up and volunteering for something and uh, questioning something on, uh, a belief that they have. Um, I mean, perhaps this is medicine for me to be able to sit down and chat with you for an hour or so about health and nutrition and that kind of stuff, because I see how, uh, powerful that can be in my own world, but um, and we're doing it for other people. Yeah, I mean that for me is huge. Yeah, I just had a flash of uh, something 
that came into my mind. That, you know, sometimes, you know, people come into the clinic and I can see that they're just like kind of brittle inside because they haven't had enough connection hmm. and they're stressed out enough that they're sick because otherwise why would they be talking to me? And, and I always ask them to do one simple thing. Which is? Go to the food cupboard where we serve soup to people who don't have enough money to buy lunch. You mean here in town? Yep. And volunteer to sit there and serve strange people that are probably worse off than you a meal. Hmm. And what kind of response do you get back from people when they do it? They are in the chair crying and blubbering and breaking open because they've realized that that's how they see themselves. Hmm. You know, it's all about the scarcity of everything. And I mean, they don't, they've got a job, they're coming in to see me. So they're not, you know, on the street or whatever in the sense of being broke. But by actually seeing people who are truly in scarcity and truly in need, you know, and as a community, we create as much support we, as we can uh, for, for any people that, that need help, right? I mean, we have an amazing reputation here for people who are, you know, needing help. And, um, when you go and actually actively do that, you know, the truth of what that is to give someone in need what they need because you've taken the time to do so, it breaks people's hearts open. The, uh, the analogy that comes to mind is um, just based on what you said there, the word brittle. Um, in order to become flexible, uh, most things need to be warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm thinking of a lump of butter. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, metal. You know, uh, and I'm probably thinking of your patients. You know, most, you know, in order to warm me up on the inside, this brittle, old, um, stiff thing, uh, warming myself up by um, being in connection to somebody else um, will totally improve how everything works. Everything works better when it's warm. Well, it doesn't mean anyway. <laughs> yeah, and again, the the point is, you know, if if we're facing scarcity, which we are, we have to face it with respect to the sufficiency we can create. Otherwise, we're just going to keep becoming more and more cynical, uh, narcissistic, nihilistic people who, you know, are convinced by, you know, people like Donald Trump or whatever that, you know, uh, you know, it's everybody else can go to hell. As long as we take care of our, our, our little, you know, pocket of, mm-hmm. you know, approved of, you know, humans, then, then that's all that we get. Right. And not to turn this into a political podcast, but... Um, I think he represents a good example of how things are different than what you're talking about. I mean, the the guy is basically the poster child for greed. Yeah. You know, and I'm not, I mean, maybe he's a good person. Maybe he's working out his karma and his childhood traumas. I'm not here to speak to him about him as anything else than just an example of one, one polarization of what our society is uh, willing to explore. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that he, you know, can take this to the popularity that he has for me is a, a hugely diagnostic confirming thing. Although I bow my head in, you know, a certain amount of embarrassment at the whole thing. What a, I mean, what a better, I can't think of a better thing to happen right now than to someone to come along and really push us loudly and aggressively and rudely into that corner and say, look at who you are. Hmm. Are, are you this or are you something completely different? No, it's it's certainly given people a lot of um, pause for reflection based on how uh, that whole thing shows up. Yeah, and I mean, and I'll take it back away from you know TV politics or whatever. But 
the real thing that I get out of these kind of conversations with people, with you, with the podcast, uh, with the people listening is it, it touches us on a place that's true, that's always been true, that can't be painted over or hidden. Because we all know implicitly that cooperation, consensual, you know, in interaction and communication and sharing will always out, um, compete or support something in which scarcity actually becomes a, a positive reflex hmm. you know no matter what you know i'll bring up this example because it just seems to need to be said uh one of my first jobs was taking people into the bush um on these two three week canoe adventures and this is usually kids coming out of children's aid society and juvenile detention Right, So these kids have all been traumatized one way or another or are sources of trauma for other people enough that they've been incarcerated. So we put them in vans, take them off into the wild blue yonder, put them all in canoes after an orientation to see who can swim and paddle and stuff like that. And then we would take these people uh, on 80 to 90 you know, canoe tr- uh, mile trips where we'd have to like paddle across a lake, uh, hike over a mountain, paddle across a lake to get to the place where we're going to get picked up. And if we don't get there or we get lost or we're too slow, we might be stuck out here forever. Wow. Obviously, legally, that would never have happened, <laughs> you know. But that was the context, and that's what people signed up for. And it, it was like Lord of the Flies. I mean, you have all these aggressive, cynical young people who've been, you know, battered by our, you know, the world in whatever way that they were, you know, looking for the fight or looking for the, I don't know, I'm the top dog or whatever. Or just reacting in a way so that they could survive based on what they already knew how to do. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, but I'm just saying like they, they came in there charged for some kind of competitive scarcity moment of it, scarcity of popularity or, you know, sleeping space or who gets to hang out with a cute girl or whatever. And um, the first two days were always complete insanity because cooperation was the last thing they wanted to do. You got kids splashing the smaller kids with the paddle because ha 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 taunting and bullying. Let's let's go with that. And this is what I would do. And uh, so I would take them all. We climb up into a big tree and we had to feed each other. You're not allowed to put your own food into your mouth, but you can take any of the food we carried up into the tree and put it in somebody else's mouth. Hmm. Right. Wow. And then I would fall out of the tree. And a couple of times I actually hurt myself, but usually I planned it well enough that I could like bonk and roll. And, and then I'd pretend that I had a concussion. And I'm the only person who really knows exactly what's going on <laughs> or how everything really works. You know, we teach people basics, navigation and orientation, orienteering and stuff. But all of a sudden the person who's like in charge and, you know, if everything really bad happens, we're all screwed within, I don't know, Usually a day, maybe a day or two after that, with me like bandaged up and limping and stuff, because a couple of times I sprained my ankle, um, they just came together, jailed up with their own hierarchy, their own uh, people volunteering. Okay, I'll do this if you do that. Blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, I'm just smiling my, you know, I don't know, secret ninja smile at, wow, humans are amazing. You put them in a situation where they have to cooperate, and boom, you got a tribe in a couple of days. And that's a very healing thing for I mean, the individual to be participating that way. Yeah, I mean, I've had people bump into me years later where they, like, I used to have, have, have a goofy nickname and they call me and run over and that changed my life. I can't believe it. I, you know, I haven't been in jail since or I haven't done anything really bad since or I finally got off drugs or, you know, and it wasn't me. It was they entered into belonging into a tribe solving problems and relying on each other and sharing food. That sounds like evolutionary medicine. Yeah. 
Wow. Very cool. Um, we could probably go on for a while more with this. It's okay. We're done. I'm, I'm okay. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, please, if you're listening to this, you know, if you feel brittle, go and serve food to people who need it more than you. Mm, that's uh, that's pretty good advice. Uh, I guess that wraps up today's episode of Fusion Health Radio. Um, based on everything you've heard today, I'm sure you've got some feedback for us, uh, and we want to hear from you. So please do look for Fusion Health Radio on Facebook. Uh, Facebook is a great place where you can leave comments. You can ask Michael questions and perhaps offer your own ideas for a Fusion Health Radio podcast in the future. Uh, you can also access Fusion Health Radio podcasts on iTunes and probably your favorite podcast app. You can find us there because they all reference the iTunes library that way. I use um, Stitcher. That's the one that I listen with. Um, and you can subscribe to the podcast. And when you do that, uh, you can get access to the complete library. And sorry, when you when you do that, you can uh, leave us a review or an idea or a comment, a thumbs up, thumbs down. Either way, we want to hear what you have to say about what we're doing. And uh, we'd love to get a little bit more traction on iTunes because that'll put us in front of a few more people and we can share this message. You can be part of that. Yeah, please join the Fusion Health Radio tribe. There you go. Because um, that's why we're doing this. I mean, this is our Saturday afternoon. We could be doing all kinds of things, but we're both committed to doing this because uh, the feedback we've been getting from people that it's actually helping them. That's that's huge for us. Uh, thanks for listening. Fusion Health Radio is the health lifestyle mindset podcast featuring Dr. Michael Smith. I'm Anthony Santa. I'm your host, and we will see you next time. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.